Good morning. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Uh, my name is Zach, and I am the associate minister here, which means on any given week, including this one, I am responsible for all of our uh, kids, anything kids-related. I've got my hands in it somehow, and it's a, it's a lot of fun being able to do that. It's also a lot of fun and a privilege to be up here preaching this morning, continuing in our series on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, there's a there's a spoken word performance that left uh, quite a mark on me several years ago. Uh, if you are wondering what spoken word is uh, and how it might be different from what I'm doing this morning as I am here speaking words, uh, I would describe spoken word as uh, it's it's poetry set on fire. It is poetry performed using changes in tone and, and pace and cadence that, that brings the poem to life, that gives it hooks, that, that, grip, that grip you and hold on to you. And, and there's a man, uh, a Christian by the name of Jason Petty, who goes by the stage name Propaganda. Uh, several years ago, he performed this piece called Be Present. And it starts with this funny story about him and his wife. His actual, his actual wife jokingly refers to his phone as his wife. Uh, and they, they laugh together. It kind of is on the nose and he gets it and, and they start talking and he, he eventually stops paying attention pretty quickly to this conversation they're having because he is working on a post to put on the internet to talk about marriage and how much he loves his wife and how clever and funny she was for this joke. And what snaps him back to reality is the silence that indicates that he's supposed to have some sort of response to whatever it was she was talking about. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I have definitely been there. Uh, whether it was a screen, a book, or just my mind. Uh, funny enough, I actually do this probably the worst when I'm working. If I happen to be at home and I'm, I'm reading or I'm studying, I will look at Hannah but she knows I am staring right through her and I'm looking at some idea that I'm cooking up in my brain. Now, how often do you miss what's right in front of you because you are preoccupied with something else? How often are you blinded, not because your eyes don't work, but because your heart and your mind are drifting? See, sometimes this blindness, this lack of awareness is harmless And sometimes it's scary, like driving down the road and arriving at your destination, realizing you don't remember a single thing about that drive. But what happens if you become blind to Jesus? What happens if you miss him? How can you be sure that you are seeing Jesus? And what's what's the big deal with seeing Jesus anyways? Does it does it really matter that much? Can I just see Jesus a little bit? So this morning we're going to look at Mark 7 through Mark 8, 21. All of Mark's gospel is a story written to answer the question, who is Jesus? The whole thing. But before we look for help from Mark on how we can be sure that we aren't blind to the answer, that we aren't blind to who Jesus is, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for, thank you for your word. Um, God, last week as we considered uh, Mark 6, 
And we read about Jesus' compassion on the crowd, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, Thank you, God, that we, like sheep, are not left to ourselves, that you have given us your word to feed on, to nourish us, um, that you guide us by your Holy Spirit and through your word um, to life, to still waters and green pastures. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather this morning um, with uh, people coming from all different, all different places, all different situations, um, different weekends, different plans ahead of them. God, help us to lay aside our burdens right now um, to worship you. And maybe even better than that, God, help us as a church to pick up one another's burdens uh, in order that we might worship you better as a body, as the body uh, and bride of Christ. Um, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that you would make yourself known in your word, and that you would be good on your promise that when your word goes out, it does not return void, but always accomplishes what you intend for it to accomplish. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Again, the, the text this morning is Mark 7 through Mark eight twenty one. So if you want to go ahead and flip there, it looks like the slides are up. We, we've got a new computer back there, and we've had some hiccups, as you might have already noticed. Um, so if it goes out, you could, you know, try this novel thing of opening a Bible, which if you do not have a Bible, there should be one in one of the seat underneath one of the seats in front of you. But let's begin with reading Mark seven, starting in verse one it says now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called to the people, he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, 
coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, at this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has primarily been journeying around the region of Galilee. Galilee is a sea in in the northeast corner of Israel. It's roughly the size of Noblesville and Fishers by landmass. That's not quite right. But it's roughly the size of Noblesville and Fishers. And by boat, Jesus and his disciples have gone from town to town teaching and ministering in power. And building quite a reputation in the process. And here in Mark 7, Jesus is likely in Gennesaret, which is the last location named at the end of Mark chapter 6. So in Gennesaret, which is an area on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is once again confronted by the Pharisees, along with scribes who had traveled from Jerusalem. This is a focused, direct confrontation. These are not chance meetings between the Pharisees, scribes, and Jesus. They are seeking him out. They have traveled from Jerusalem to stop him. Jesus has been rocking the boat. If you go back to Mark 3, you'll see that that there the Pharisees have been plotting to destroy Jesus for quite some time. So their big plan to destroy Jesus is to accuse Jesus' disciples of eating with dirty hands. What gives, right? Well, as you may have come to expect from Jesus and the Pharisees, things don't go well for them. The Pharisees are the wily coyote to Jesus' roadrunner. Every stick of dynamite blows up in their own face. But why? Why would they bring this charge against Jesus? Well, see, the Pharisees, for them, having clean hands wasn't a matter of personal hygiene, Being defiled, unwashed, or unclean made you unqualified to approach God in worship. The Israelites were a special people set apart by God to honor him and to worship him. And so to perpetuate uncleanness or defilement was to fall short of this purpose and to dishonor God. To continuously make yourself unclean showed that you just didn't care to worship God. So the Pharisees attempting to discredit Jesus, accuse his followers, and by implication, Jesus himself, for perpetuating a state unfit to approach God in worship. They aren't saying, gross, wash your hands, you're disgusting, we're all going to get sick. They're saying, sinner, how can you claim to be from God when your people don't follow the rules necessary to worship him? So how does Jesus respond to this charge? He shifts the playing field. The Pharisees and the scribes, they want to talk about dirty hands, but Jesus talks instead about dirty hearts. When he quotes from Isaiah in verses 6 and 7, he acknowledges that the Pharisees talk a good game, but their worship is empty. It's vain. It's meaningless. In verses 8 through 13, we see the religious leaders have created these traditions meant to honor God. But they break the very commandments of God in the process of keeping these traditions. See, the Pharisees have implied that Jesus dishonors God for breaking their man-made traditions, while they themselves are guilty of breaking God's laws. See, it's not clean hands that make a clean person, but a clean heart. For out of a defiled heart come all sorts 
of nastiness, as we just read, listed there in Mark. And Jesus is accusing, diagnosing even, the Pharisees and scribes of heart disease. Now, in the flow of the story, there, there is no response or rebuttal from the Pharisees and scribes. And maybe that's for good reason. Maybe uh, the Pharisees and scribes are spared any more embarrassment by not giving them words. But in verse 24, we're simply told that Jesus rose and left. But the Pharisees, they appear once again in chapter 8. So we're going to jump ahead to Mark 8, verse 11, 12, and 13 to see them come back on the scene one more time. It says this, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. The Pharisees fail to see Jesus for who he is. But it isn't because Jesus doesn't give them a sign. By this point, the Pharisees had all the signs they needed, and then some, to come to the right conclusion about who Jesus is. But they weren't looking for a sign to be convinced. They were looking for an opportunity to trip Jesus up. They were looking for any angle possible to discredit Jesus and to discredit his ministry. But Jesus doesn't play ball. Instead, he leaves them once again. So why did the Pharisees fail to see Jesus right in front of them? Because their hearts, their hearts are defiled. Because their hearts are convinced that God wouldn't come and challenge them. They are too holy, too educated, too wise. They've got God all figured out, and they're making him happy, at least so they think, with their service. They're proud, they're self-righteous, and they make a practice of sin. It's kind of like a rushed cleaning job, right? Someone calls, and, and all of a sudden you have unexpected company on the way, and you've got 15 minutes to clean up your house. What do you do? Well, if you are me, or Hannah... Sorry, Hannah, to throw you under the bus. You throw everything that's out all around the house into your bedroom, into a closet, wherever you can close a door that will not be opened in the presence of polite company is where your mess goes. Yeah. And then your guests come in and they think to themselves, wow, this, this house is so clean. I wish my house were so tidy. You must be a good person for keeping your house so clean. And little do they know, That the mess has just been moved. See, Jesus isn't interested in moving your mess from the living room to the bedroom. He's interested in cleaning it up. But if you're determined to move your mess from one spot to the other, then you will certainly miss Jesus. You will fail to see him and what he is doing because a defiled heart cannot see Jesus. But the good news You don't need to clean up your mess before you come to Christ. You just need to acknowledge that it's there, that it's actually a real mess, and that it actually really needs picked up. A pure heart, as opposed to a defiled heart, is not necessarily a sinless heart. A pure heart is a humble heart. Or at least the process of purity begins with humility. Let's look at this next chunk of verses and see this very thing play out. It's in, back in chapter 7, starting in verse 24. It says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know that he could not be hidden. 
But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, it's not a a coincidence that that Mark records Jesus leaving the Pharisees and scribes behind in Gennesaret and heading to the land of Tyre inside. And I don't expect you to be familiar with biblical geography, but Gennesaret is a Jewish area. Tyre and Sidon are not. So in the story, as we're confronted with the issue of defilement, what does it mean to be pure, which has been understood by Jews as a matter of practice and ritual, it's being represented by Jesus as an issue of the heart. So we come to Tyre and Sidon, and these people, they are obviously and undeniably unclean. They have dirty hands. The woman who's helped by Jesus is certainly no exception. She is clearly identified as a Gentile, and we have every reason to believe that she did not uphold the ritualistic purity laws of the Jews. And Jesus' language here is one of the most jarring statements in all of the Bible. The woman asks for help, and he, he refuses. He initially refuses, and he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, he's referring to Israel as the children, and this was not unheard of. Israel considered themselves the children of God. Again, they were God's special people, but no one is surprised or jarred by this part. So does Jesus really call this desperate woman a dog? Well, again, this wasn't unheard of either. But it certainly wasn't flattering. Dogs were dirty, stinky, trash-eating Street-roaming scavengers. They were not the domesticated house pets we think of today. And even even if we believe that Jesus isn't saying that this woman is a stinky, dirty, unclean, street-roaming scavenger, a dog, for whatever you might think of it, is still less than a child. So is Jesus just being a jerk? Is Jesus being racist? Is he suggesting that the Jews are better off or better than everyone else, that everyone else is considered a dog? Well, Jesus isn't telling this woman that she is no more valuable than a dog. He's not calling her an inferior human being. Remember, this is a parable. When Jesus tells parables about seeds and soils, he isn't saying that people are as valuable as the dirt under their feet. His point isn't about the inherent value of this woman. His point is that his priority is to God's chosen people, the Israelites. The Israelites were the children of the promise. They were the descendants of Abraham. They had the temple and the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, the law, the prophets, the promised land. All of that was theirs. They were the ones waiting for a savior, a redeemer, a Messiah. And Jesus had come to them first in order to fulfill God's promises. They were Jesus's priority in his earthly ministry. And the woman understands this she understands that she has no rightful claim on jesus she understands that anything he does for her is not out of obligation 
but grace and mercy. Yet, she persists in asking him, or asking to be blessed. She persists in asking him to heal her daughter. He, she believes that Jesus, out of the overflow of his power and goodness, will graciously and mercifully heal her daughter, will deliver her. And notice, too, how this woman responds to the parable. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, even just now in, in the beginning of chapter 7, the disciples are consistently confused by Jesus' parables. They go into the house and Jesus, what did that, what did that mean? We don't get it. And he he kind of, he's like, guys, again, again, you still don't understand. And he explains it to them. But this woman, this Gentile woman has not only grasped the meaning of this parable, but she answers back to Jesus in its language. She calls herself a dog, but argues that even dogs get crumbs from the table. Even dogs get the overflow. And Jesus responds by healing her daughter. So what's the difference between this woman and the Pharisees? It would be easy to see them as total and complete opposites. On the one hand, you have the Pharisees who are blinded by their self-righteousness. And on the other hand, you have this woman who clearly sees Jesus for who she is or who he is and comes in humility and just totally rejecting herself. But that's not necessarily what happened here. To come to that conclusion is unfortunately assuming a lot. We can't know what this woman believed. After she encountered Jesus, there's no record. We don't know if she believed he was the son of God. We don't know if she ever heard the gospel of the forgiveness of sins. But we do know from this story that Jesus Christ moves towards her in a way that he withheld from the Pharisees. See, humility is a it's like it's. It's not like a helicopter that will pick you up and whisk you away to see God immediately. Humility is more like the landing pad that creates a space for Jesus to come down to you and find you. This Gentile mother knew that she had a mess on her hands and she wasn't trying to hide it. And Jesus cleaned it up. If you want to see Jesus, you have to admit you have a mess in your heart. And that you're going to hand it over to him to be cleaned. Because Jesus reveals himself to the humble. If you want to see Jesus, you need to humble yourself before him. Now why does this matter so much? Why does it matter that our hearts are undefiled, that they are purified by humility before Jesus? It's because we cannot afford to miss who Jesus is. We can't afford to see Jesus and blow him off. We cannot afford to look through Jesus as we gaze into the distance of our own hopes and dreams and ideas. This is why it's so important. It's because Jesus is doing so much more than just teaching and healing and and even casting out demons. It's the very thing that this woman might have missed. That is the very thing that you absolutely cannot afford to not see. We're going to Read the last big chunk, starting in 731 through the end of the piece this morning. It says, then he returned, this Jesus, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. 
And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Prayer you Christian church, church, do you not yet understand? In this last large chunk, we have the healing of a deaf man with a speech impediment and a second miraculous feeding of a large crowd. Now, both of these events take place in a region called the Decapolis, which is, again, another Gentile area, which is important because of the theme of purity and defilement. Who can approach God? Who can worship God? Who will God draw near to? Is it those who are with clean hands or those who are with pure hearts? So with the healing of the deaf man, there are a lot of strange details recorded. For one, Jesus places his fingers into his ears. And he seems to apply spit to this man's tongue. Mark also includes the words that Christ spoke to the man. Uh, I really don't know what we're supposed to do with this information. Uh, Most answers are speculations at best. And the reason I bring this up is because there are plenty of curious things in the Bible. But I don't want you to make a habit. I don't want us to make a habit of getting lost on rabbit trails and missing the path that the text is trying to take us on. When these people are recorded saying in Mark 7:37 that he has done all things well, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. 
We're not supposed to be thinking about the medicinal practices of Jesus in first century ancient, the ancient Near East. We're supposed to be seeing how Mark is building from images and ideas in the Old Testament that this is what God does. God is the one who heals the deaf. God is the one who feeds the masses in the wilderness. And that path, again, is further developed in the beginning of chapter 8 with the feeding of the crowd. Last week, Ben talked about Jesus' other feeding in Mark 6 uh, and how it paints the picture or the portrait of Jesus as a shepherd, full of compassion for wandering, lost, and hurting people. And here we see that compassion again. Christ has compassion on the people. But more than that, or at least as much as that, we see the power and glory of Jesus Christ as he does what only God can do. He feeds crowds in a desolate place from practically nothing, just like he did for the Israelites during their exodus from Egypt. Only this time, this crowd, they aren't Israelites. It's Gentiles. And it's funny. I can almost imagine Mark, the author of this gospel, winking at us as we read this story. Because if you remember just a few verses earlier, we were reading about bread and children and dogs. And here is Jesus giving bread to the dogs. And it is far more than table scraps. So if you had any lingering hang-ups about Jesus' opinion of Gentiles, you can bury them right here in Mark 7. Again, this story includes details about the numbers, the seven loaves, and the twelve loaves from the other. Uh, And both of those numbers are significant biblically, but there's not necessarily any significance to these stories. Any guesses on those numbers is again just are again just guesses. So do do not get lost on rabbit trails and miss the main path. Again, the main path here that you are meant to follow leads you to the conclusion that Jesus is God. And the realization that Jesus is God changes everything. It takes all the separate pieces that we've been pulling together through the Gospel of Mark and puts them together in a way that makes them shine, that makes them more beautiful, that brings them together in a way that you finally see the full picture more clearly. See, Jesus is not just a wise man speaking in profound riddles. He's not just a magic doctor curing people of their ailments. He's not just an exorcist casting out demons. He's not just a benevolent man making sure the poor hungry masses are fed. Jesus is God in the flesh who has come to the world to rescue it and restore it and to establish his glorious kingdom. The riddles speak to the mystery of the kingdom. The curing points us to God's plan to restore our broken bodies for eternity. Jesus' casting out demons points to his authority over evil and gives us confidence that evil will one day be vanquished. The feeding assures us that we will never want for anything under Christ's care. That we will feast for eternity without money or price. This is the kingdom of God, and it's made possible, as we will find out over the coming weeks, through death on a cross. This is the Jesus that you must see. Not just a nice guy, not just a good teacher, not just even a powerful man. This is the Jesus that you cannot afford to miss. So do you not yet understand? 
Going to church is no guarantee that you will see Jesus. Reading your Bible is no guarantee. The Pharisees and scribes knew the scriptures. The disciples physically followed Jesus and struggled to understand. Many people have wandered into a church and left it without seeing and understanding who Jesus is. If you are here looking for help in your already good life, there is a good chance you will miss Jesus. If you are here thinking God is so lucky to have you, you're probably missing Jesus. If you're here because you believe that God accepts you based on the goodness of your life and so you better show up to church, you're probably missing Jesus. If you would see and know Jesus, you must humble yourself. Feel the weight of your sin. Can you call yourself a dog with an honest heart based on the filth, the defilement of your sin? Will you admit to Christ your great need and beg for his help, for his grace and mercy? If you want to see God, you must humble yourself. And if you do, Jesus will come to you. Jesus, in whom the fullness of God dwells. See his power, see his wisdom, see his compassion and tenderness, and cast yourself in humbleness at his feet. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, guard our hearts against the, uh, the, the sin, the error of pride of self-righteousness. Um, that our eyes might be open not only to our great need of a Savior, but our great Savior. Um, God, that over and over and over in your, again in your word, you tell us that you oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. How much encouragement there is in your word to those who are low, lowly in heart, who are humble, who are broken in spirit. God, help us not to hide those messes. Help us um, not to live like Pharisees who think we can save ourselves, whether it's by doing good religious deeds or doing good deeds out in the world, just being good people. God, help us to see our great need again and, and the great salvation that you have provided, that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, um, who does die for our sins, uh, who is going to rule as king, and whose kingdom looks like these miracles, looks like these these. Uh, wonderful teachings that we've read throughout the Gospel of Mark. Lord, I pray for the remainder of this service and and even as we uh, spend time here together after for the meal that you would be uh, built, that you would be honored and that we would be built up in our fellowship with one another. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.